0: Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter now let's dial in hi everyone and uh, thank you for tuning in to today's Bearance live i'm jeremy chan the trading and tech correspondent for financial news Uh, joining me today is uh, derek salmon global head of commodities options and international markets at cme to discuss how commodity markets are facing and you know in an environment of war inflation and climate change and generally how finance is kind of meeting the real economy so to kind of kick off my questions, uh, uh, Derek, and then thank you again for joining me, is commodities markets have seen a lot of volatility recently um, with COVID, the aftershocks like that, um, the war in Ukraine. So just generally, how has commodity markets kind of reacted to all this sort of uncertainty and volatility?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. First of all, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to talk about what we're seeing in the commodity side of the business. You know, CME Group is the world's largest derivatives exchange. We run diverse asset classes from financial markets like fixed income, um, equities, foreign exchange, all the way through to kind of the real economy uh, products like energy, uh, agricultural products, and metals. And you know certainly what we saw last year was unprecedented levels of volatility on the heels of COVID, and then somewhat of recovery. We then had the Russian u- invasion of Ukraine, and that really. Uh, impacted lots of things, certainly was a a driver of inflation, absolutely impacted physical commodities where you saw this real significant disruption in supply chains for things like natural gas and crude oil and wheat, which, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, supplies 25% of the the global wheat. So what we saw last year across our derivatives exchange was record levels of uh, participation in our markets, record levels of volume. Uh, and record levels of volatility across almost every one of our asset classes. So we put up a record year last year that included not just futures and options across the board, but in our international business, because much of the risk that was being managed is from non-U.S. customers as well. So we are uh, certainly uh, not through this bout of volatility uh, and what we've actually seen in our commodities markets. Well, commodities were disrupted substantially last year, and that actually created so much volatility that some folks actually pulled back a little bit. We've seen a real resumption of commodities activities this year. If we look at the quarter-to-date results and and across our products here, our agricultural market volumes are up 29% uh, through uh, this quarter, up 29% in our metals products, and our energy business is up 9%. So we're continuing to see broader participation reflecting higher levels of volatility and uncertainty across the global commodities landscape.
0: Yes, because... Some of your products there there are are tied to to Ukraine and Russia. You know what what happened to those?
1: Yeah, you know the bulk of our markets that we have in agricultural products specifically are U.S. benchmarks, so our U.S. corn contract on the Chicago Board of Trade. The same thing for our U.S. wheat contract and our soybean complex. Um, you know the the one specific two specific contracts we have is our Black Sea wheat contract, and we had a Black Sea sunflower contract. Two very small contracts. The sunflower. Uh, contract uh, was suspended just given the extreme volatility and really the severing of supply chains. We do still have the Black Sea wheat contract operational, but what we saw there was um, volatility and volume levels that we haven't seen in over 10 years. We haven't seen wheat prices trade that high in over 10 years. So we saw global participation in even our U.S. benchmark physical wheat contract, particularly since lines were severed to the supply from Europe. That meant the the, the world needed to turn to the second largest supplier, which is the U.S., and that meant participation levels of activity and open interest uh, grew last year. And as I said, our agricultural complex quarter to date is up 29 percent and 30 percent just in the month of June alone.
0: Is Is that a result of traders actively trying to avoid using products coming from Ukraine and Russia?
1: Yeah, I think it's less of a of an instead of and more kind of the best proxy hedge. I mean, when you talk about the 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 price of wheat was globally affected, it it, it impact the price of European wheat, the price of wheat coming out of Russia and certainly the price of the benchmark product that comes out of the US as well. So when, when markets tend to want to trade in benchmark pools of liquidity, they tend to be global. They tend to be uh, liquid all hours of the day from the Tokyo Open to the the San Francisco close where customers are reacting to events all throughout the global trading day. So it's less of a function of not trading, um, say, U- Ukraine or black Sea wheat, but trading U.S. wheat instead. Really, those products were always traded and traded as, as a as a differential to one another in the absence of. Uh, liquidity because those those supply signs were, were shut we saw an increased participation in using our. US wheat contract as a proxy for global wheat prices and that's really where we saw folks piling in yeah.
0: in a, a similar situation with oil and gas as well as probably a few people were well aware there's been a lot of sanctions regarding that from from Russia have you know people moved to your markets to, to look for prices.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. When you, you look at the 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 global, we'll start with crude oil. Look at the global crude oil market last year. Substantial amounts of Russian crude oil was removed from the market really because of sanctions to the point you just made. That meant that was not flowing out into the global economy. There are still countries that are selectively purchasing Russian oil, whether it's India or China, a few other places, but the, that, that crude oil needed to be replaced somewhere. So what I actually saw was the US has now exported over the course of 2022 record levels of Crude oil, what's known as WTI or West Texas Intermediate, which is the U.S. and really the global benchmark for crude oil. We saw the U.S. exporting record amounts of crude oil out of the U.S. last year, and that continued into this year. I think we're exporting almost 4 million barrels a day because that has to replace Russian crude oil that did not Uh, any longer come onto the market so us is becoming a swing producer in the global crude oil market so that meant we saw initially real uh, uh, impacts initially negative impacts to participation in crude oil market and that was true in our markets as well as other markets now we've seen that resume so things like open interest which is the number of contracts that are held open by customers is back up to uh, pre-invasion levels and we're seeing participation and volume uh, come back and actually exceed those levels as well. So we've seen a resumption of activity. Uh, and similarly, on natural gas, natural gas is now a product where the US is exporting at maximum capacity into liquefied natural gas, which gets put onto a boat and shipped to Europe and Asia. And that means that the US is effectively setting the price of both crude oil and natural gas from the benchmark physical contracts here in the US, which are traded on CME Group exchanges. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a good pivot to inflation, which is, you know, oil and gas, they have been big drivers of inflation over these past 12 months. It's 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 calmed down
1: recently, but it's still quite high. You know, can can we tell where inflation is going by looking at commodity markets? <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know if it's going up or going down. I'm reading the same CPI numbers that you are. The numbers that came out earlier this week imply that some of the headline inflation is reducing, but core inflation is continuing to be very, very high. We certainly saw crude oil trade before the the invasion, just for context, Crude oil in the US was trading about $65 a barrel. That doubled in price. It spiked up to $130 after the invasion as the world just needed to wonder where is, is crude oil going to come from if a huge supply coming into Europe from Russia was no longer available. So that's one of the reasons why we saw record levels of volume and participation in our markets in 2022. And we're seeing a resumption of that commodities activity in 2023. So I, I, I don't know where inflation is going, but what I know for sure is we're seeing levels of participation globally, uh, levels of, uh, of volume and open interest being held by our customers globally increased, particularly this year, uh, and a resumption of significant activity uh, in our energy market. So I think that tells me that if you read the signals in the market, volatility remains elevated. That means uncertainty is elevated. And typically in uncertain times, people turn to places like CME Group and enhance and expand their use of derivatives contracts to exactly offset mitigate or hedge their exposure to potentially a resumption of higher prices or for folks that like higher prices producers for example or 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 those that that are are drilling they want to lock in those higher prices so we see participation at both ends of the curve to to lock in higher prices or to hedge against higher prices going forward
0: mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned WTI a bit earlier. It's obviously one of the benchmarks for oil around the globe. Um, you know, it's, it's a core product for, for CME, but you also have other products for the green economy, like lithium. H- how do you see that the market kind of developing this sort of new oil, and what's going to happen to oil, old oil once, quote, unquote, new oil becomes the new thing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the broader question, Jeremy, that you're pointing at is energy transition. What does that look like? What are the components to that? And what's the timeline for that? So as, as you mentioned, we, we run the, 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 the U.S. benchmark crude oil market in, in the WTI complex. And same thing for our natural gas complex. And the, the underlying product there is what's called Henry Hub natural gas. And Henry Hub is the connectivity point for all physical uh, natural gas uh, flows physically through the U.S., Um, And what we're seeing is natural gas is not only today's fuel, uh, it's a transition fuel, but really it's a green fuel of the future as well. So natural gas is a significant part of today's energy story and will continue to be and extend itself into the future and be part of that energy transition and beyond. Um, uh, Crude oil as being a fossil fuel product is not going away anytime soon. Uh, We're seeing, as I said, record level or resumption of levels of open interest and volume and participation that tell us if you look at the positions being held out across the curve their positions in our futures contracts going out to 2026 and beyond so the, the market is not pricing in that uh, crude oil disappears anytime soon in fact we think this is largely a generational shift this could be decades before you see a, a real real uh, uh, pullback in in fossil fuels That said, we're also working with our customers to build out these frontier markets that today are small but growing, but tomorrow will be central to whether it's electric vehicle production or consumption. So we run the benchmark markets and products like cobalt and lithium, which as you know, are critical components into battery metals, which are critical components into batteries for EVs, which are gonna be over time an increasing proportion of cars on the road. Uh, We also are very actively involved in other markets around uh, copper and steel that are significant components and in any infrastructure build that's going to support the energy transition and then lastly as you think about the energy transition story um, you have to think about the carbon market and how the the world is pricing hedging and taking positions in the price of carbon globally and so we have built out a, a product suite of a voluntary carbon price called, Geo or geo products, and that stands for global emissions offsets. And these are contracts that have a thousand tons of carbon offsets associated with them. So whether you are a a car producer or an electricity provider, or maybe you're a farmer and rancher and want want to monetize the position that you have in carbon offsets markets, we're seeing record levels of participation in our markets. I think we've seen over 360 million offsets trade in our voluntary carbon markets uh, since we launched this market about three and a half years ago. And we've seen over 16 million tons of carbon offsets go to delivery, meaning that that is being pulled out of the atmosphere uh, in, in our market. So we're excited about the growth of this. And we think all of these front today's frontier markets are tomorrow core markets as we go through this energy transition. And before I see the next question, I'm just going to flag to the audience just a reminder that if you have
0: any questions for derek just uh, please put them in and we'll, we'll try to get to them at the end of today's uh, call but to kind of stick to the theme of the voluntary carbon market you know it's it's a growing market but it's one that's been challenged with with greenwashing and a lot of trouble with figuring out if you know the carbon is being sucked out of the air as it's being proposed um what, what's what's the role of the of your exchange in trying to making sure that these contracts are you know, being the sinks for carbon that that they are the people are looking for
1: yeah great question i think when you think about the role of an exchange we're here to provide a platform and meeting buyers and sellers and providing standardized contracts where price discovery can happen and risk can get handed off from a risk owner to somebody else that wants to take that risk off their hands and establish a, a a transparent price in a well regulated legal environment where there are customer protections and investor safeguards. So that's really why we entered into this market because customers are asking us, you know, we need to build a market that is global in nature, that has standardized contracts, that has rules and regulations around the definition of these contracts, the definition of, of an offset who approves those offsets and then how those contracts are priced and traded and how they get delivered. So our role in that equation is we're at the pricing level. So we rely on what we're called registries uh, that validate offsets. So if you're a customer, say you're a a massive landowner in Brazil, for example, and you've got a a tract of land that you'd like to monetize in terms of its carbon uh, carbon footprint, you can then apply to one of these registries to look at your project, look at your plot of land, and they will evaluate how much uh, tonnage of, of carbon offsets that represents. So there's a registry process and that's legally sits under the United Nations that's regulated there. Um, so those then flow into products that are traded in standardized contract terms on an exchange like CME Group. So our role in that kind of front to back chain is the price discovery process. We rely on the registries for the legal certification of those offsets and then we deliver those through uh, after those are traded and price discovered on our exchanges. so it's a growing industry this is it really didn't exist five to seven years ago so as need has changed as investing patterns and trends have changed um we've worked with our global customers and the regulators to make sure that the markets that we provide are under the full regulatory jurisdiction of the cftc which is our regulator and the the reliance that we have on the registries themselves to validate these products and projects are all covered in the same regulatory framework so customers had to have the safety and security of a regulated marketplace as opposed to an unregulated OTC or bilateral market. And this is increasingly where customers are are bringing their business.
0: Yeah. Well, was interesting you mentioned the CFTC because they are trying to, they're exploring the space, but there right now, no regulation on the carpet market. Do you feel you need the official regulator involved and looking
1: after the market? Well, they actually do oversee our, I mean, we are prudentially regulated by the CFTC. So the CFTC regulates Uh, the products that we trade and we we trade the carbon products. So you're right. The CFTC is not directly regulating the physical carbon market. And that's, they're certainly looking at their options there, but what they are regulating is us as an exchange and they've approved the carbon products that we trade and they make sure that the, um, the market mechanisms, the pricing mechanisms, all the customer protections and safeguards that customers need when they trade on an exchange to get all of that counterparty risk mitigation and customer protections are in place. So they're overseen, and in their prudential roles, are regulator. They are overseeing the business and the markets that we trade, and they have uh, approved from a regulatory point of view of the contracts we trade. I think everyone's trying to figure out who oversees that that physical process and the registries that sit under the UN right now. So the CFTC is very much involved in these markets, uh, approved our products and regulate us and the markets that we run on the voluntary carbon market side.
0: Uh And sticking to our theme of of climate, um, there's always been a lot of severe climate um, events recently, the wildfires, droughts, um, heat waves, et cetera. You know, how has that impacted commodities trading? And, you know, does the, you know, do markets have to factor that in now? You know, with these unknowable, you know, severe events.
1: Yeah, great question. I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, whether like like many things, whether it's man-made disasters like war, or whether it's uh, you know pricing uh, uh, challenges and inflation, creates risk and uncertainty in markets, and, and that's what derivatives are built to do. They're built to provide a mechanism to hedge against un- uncertain times, volatile times. And I think one of the things that we've seen uh, not only is a a proportion of an increased amount of business and customers are uh, are trading physical commodities, our energy business, agricultural products business or our metals business. But we're also seeing within those customers that are trading more physical commodities because of the risk that you mentioned, we're actually seeing the story inside of that is um, we're seeing outsized participation and growth in options on our futures. And that's a huge story. And if you know anything about options, you know that they are very flexible, sophisticated tools for managing uh, risks exactly like we're seeing right now, kind of the uncertain times, whether it's inflation, whether it's war or whether it's uh, shortages and, and, and challenges to supply chain. So if you look at our options business this year, our options also hit an all time record level last year, this first quarter. We set a record level of 5.8 million contracts traded every single day on CME Group exchanges. We traded over a billion contracts over the course of last year, and we're seeing that up again quarter to date. Our options business is up 21%. So uh, we're seeing customers, yes, use increasing numbers of derivatives, hence the overall record volume and participation, but also an expanded use of options inside that story. So. I think customers are getting smarter, they're getting more sophisticated. They're coming to places like CME Group and using our educational tools and all of the the abilities we have to help customers understand what risk they're facing, what products they have access to on CME Group exchanges and how to trade our markets to be able to effectively offset that risk, whether it's driven by climate risk, inflationary risk, war risk, the, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns that we can't quantify. But I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing record levels of participation across our exchange and options in particular.
0: Yeah, and, and you mentioned that you still have a very long curve for, for crude oil contracts. Is, is there any kind of discussion or thoughts on how
1: or when the Crude oil may become a smaller and smaller part of CME's business? I, great question. I, I, you know, how long is a piece of string? If, if, if you ask 10 people in the market, you probably get 10 different answers. I think what we are seeing is customers recognize that there's an energy transition and an arc to change that that takes different, you know, different views on whether that arc is three years, 10 years or 30 years. Um, but this is an important question. Time back to your question earlier around battery metals. Um, you know, battery metals is a relatively new market, and these are relatively narrow places. The places where you mine cobalt and lithium and nickel sulfite and, and other things that are in, important to the energy transition in EVs are not in massive supply. So the world has to determine where is there enough raw materials to support the kind of timeline and transition that people are calling for. So, I mean, if you, if you look at the customer data that we see and the participation trends and the open interest holdings across the maturity curve, Um, There's an expectation that that products like crude oil and natural gas would be around for a very long time. They'll be a part of a transition that will take time, but it also be required to know where these underlying new ingredients and products important to EVs are going to come from and how quickly can fossil fuels and internal combustion engines be replaced by EVs and electric vehicles. So it's a great question. And I think if you follow the trends in our business, uh, we're seeing no reduction in participation, we're seeing an increases in participation. So I think that the 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 unknown there and that, that uncertainty in the timeline in itself is a reason why we're seeing more more participation in our markets.
0: Uh-huh. And all that participation is, you know, producers, consumers, but do you feel that commodities is, is open to retail investors with the sort of retail movement investing?
1: yeah, great question. I, I think it's you know we we make sure that when we grow markets, it's really important to us that we think about, I'll use a technical term, the ecosystem of participants. And what we mean by that is we want to make sure that every participant that has exposure or wants exposure to our markets has an equal access to that. So whether it's commercial participants like the big uh, the big energy companies, or whether it's the big consuming companies like the the refiners, Uh, whether it's car manufacturers, whether it's hedge funds and asset managers are looking for exposure to commodities all the way through to retail that's looking for a way to add alternative assets into their portfolio. We have a range of products, whether they're the institutional size contracts and our main uh, futures contracts or what we call micro contracts, which are contracts that are one tenth the size that are more that that's a better risk sizing for a retail customer, for example. So when you look at the, the growth that we're seeing in many of our uh, micro contracts in commodities, we're seeing really strong growth, whether it's our micro WTI contract, our micro silver contract is up 42% this year, our micro copper contract is up 120% this year. So uh, long answer to a really good question. And it, the short answer is yes, and we have different products that enable the right sizing of risk appetite to the products they can all trade on CME Group in one benchmark liquidity pool, on one global platform that trades 23 and a half hours a day. So no matter what happens in the world, every customer have, has access to managing their position throughout the day, no matter what happens globally.
0: Uh-huh. And before we get to the audience questions, I just have one more for you. We've talked a lot about the different products CME has, but there is one product that the CME isn't allowed to trade anymore by an act of Congress. I was wondering if you could I guess, share a little bit of the history of CME on, on that.
1: Yeah. So funny story. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit before. There's uh, there's the the Onion Futures Act. Back in 1955, there were uh, two uh, traders in the onion market that uh, managed to corner the futures market in onions. Um, they ended up dumping onions into the Chicago River. Bizarrely, they ended up keeping the burlap sacks because both were more than the, than the onions combined themselves. Right. So the government stepped in and they banned onion tradings on the back of that. It wasn't a particularly big market at the time, but they banned. Uh, trading on the back of that so the reality is uh that's uh, the regulatory framework under which we operate now there are very strict rules in place to make sure that none of that kind of cornering of the market is allowed to happen whether it's rules on our exchange for uh, uh the size of positions any one customer can accumulate or continually looking at the underlying volatility in markets so that we're raising margins to make sure there's no systemic risk being introduced in trading markets like we do uh and so Great, funny story, but it has some real context for how markets operate, how we regulate our markets and how we are regulated by the CFTC. So there hasn't been an onion event since 1955. There hasn't been an onion contract since 1955, but all our markets uh, are uh, are regarded as the best regulated and best run markets in the world. And that's why we're seeing record levels of participation in CME group exchanges.
0: So it's not something you, you believe you'll see again.
1: I don't think onion futures are coming back, but we've got lots of other contracts. We've got weather futures that uh, are, are exploding this year in volume and participation. Back to your question about weather events, uh, we we have contracts that that track differential in in temperatures in six U.S. cities and a couple of European cities. So there are we we continue to innovate and develop new products that help customers manage through whatever risk they're looking to try to mitigate or if they're trying to get exposure to a particular asset, they've got the safe, well-regulated, customer-protected way to do that on our exchange. Mm -hmm. Great, and
0: I just wanna kind of leave the last five minutes to go through some of the audience questions and we've had a couple come in. Uh, This one's from Ruling. Uh, What do you see the balance between the supply and demand for the lithium market?
1: Great question. Uh, We're seeing a lot of demand and we're seeing uh, constricted levels of supply. And actually we've been looking at the cobalt and lithium market for many, many years. But as a regulated exchange, we, 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 we don't list contracts on underlying physical markets until there's enough uh, price discovery and liquidity in the physical market itself. So right now, if you actually kind of do a supply demand analysis, not necessarily today, but over the next five to 10 years for how much cobalt and lithium is going to be required to enable the kind of electric vehicle growth over time, there's a lot more demand than there is in today's supply. So the market's trying to equate that. We see that happening. Those prices are set on CME group exchanges, both for cobalt and lithium. Uh, we're seeing participation, not just from the commercial and physical participants, but financial participants, that I think is the base of this question, where that price might go. You know, Supply and demand, if there's too much demand and not enough supply, price is gonna go up. If there's the inverse, is gonna go down. So there's a lot of work being done in the space and we're seeing uh, different kinds of participants seek to take positions. Those that are long are happy to see prices go up. Those that know they'll have future demand for these products are hedging that exposure on our exchange because it's unclear where uh, this supply is going to come from. So I think that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge globally and for nation states as well. But right now, the price of those key uh, components to EV uh, evolution is happening on CME group exchanges.
0: And the next question comes in from christopher are there any products for mitigating risk of countries not hitting future emissions targets
1: uh great question the answer is is a kind of yes and a kind of no so there are the product that i talked about our global emissions contract or our geo contract is a suite of products that are global in nature so you can have a uh an offset in a rainforest in brazil or tract of land in thailand and if you're a an oil producer in in texas uh, you can you can purchase that offset to offset an exposure that might be sitting in a different place in the world and offset that in your us production facility for example there are other cap and trade programs in Europe and different states in in the us that are all um, fragmented and small and and where there's a there's an agreed amount of an amount of emissions that can take place and then the regulatory environment says okay trade amongst yourself on on a fixed amount of of offset so the, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is yes, but it's very fragmented right now. So that's one of the reasons the customers ask us to build a global uh, overall framework for trading carbon that has standardized product terms so that you've got uh, global participants trading the same contract. In fact, over 42% of participation in our geo contracts in the voluntary carbon market is outside the US. So it's significant participation from non-US customers. So Christopher, great question. Mm -hmm. And the
0: the next question is another kind of global question from Anthony. Uh, Earlier today, a news report said that China is going to spend billions on new infrastructure uh, spending to to stimulate their economy. Uh, How will this impact commodity markets? And is there any kind of particular commodities that are in demand based on this kind of spending?
1: short answer is yes it always a build and infrastructure build number one always has an impact on copper number two always has an impact on steel number three always has an impact on on energy prices generally we saw this in the u.s when there was a big push towards infrastructure build um the whole ev energy transition story jeremy we talked about before is part of this and typically we would uh, over the last 10 years you'd see every time china would increase their infrastructure, whether it's uh, building new residential or commercial or bridges, you'd see copper rise as a result of that because copper is a key component to any infrastructure build, not just for EVs, but for core infrastructure as is steel, iron, ore. And of course it takes energy to do that. It takes crude oil to go into asphalt. It takes crude oil and diesel to drive the trucks that will deliver uh, the raw materials to the construction sites. So the short answer is yes, more infrastructure build means there's gonna be higher demand for fuel higher demand for electricity, higher demand for raw materials to build into infrastructure builds. So uh, that will be another reason. And that's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing some inflationary pressures that won't go away because there are infrastructure builds happening here in the U.S. And the news, I saw the same report this morning uh, to refight the Chinese economy really focus on infrastructure, which they've done a number of times. That generally has an upward uh, pressure on price of raw materials, copper, uh, probably most directly.
0: Yeah, I think Anthony... As another question is, you know, will we see another spike in natural gas prices?
1: Great question. I I think there's, and it's interesting that that Anthony raised that question, because the natural gas market, there's a European natural gas market that was really directly and and painfully impacted as a result of uh, the Russian, the Ukrainian invasion by Russia last year. And it's called the TTF market. And that's basically the, the Dutch marker for European natural gas. Um, given that there were uh, supply chain disruptions and a great deal of uncertainty where that immediate flow was coming from Russia piped into Europe, into Holland, and priced there, um, you saw a huge spike up in European natural gas. Now, U.S. natural gas priced in um, in dollars here in the U.S. exported in the form of LNG had a lower level of impact. It didn't spike nearly as high, and it also, uh, I, th- I think, was not as negatively impacted. Now, that means that a record level amount, as I said before, of natural gas being exported from US, priced on Henry Hub, which is priced here in the US, exported out to Europe and Asia to replace that flow that was coming from uh, Russia previously. So will we see another spike? I I, I don't know, again, I wish I had a crystal ball, I don't. Uh, What I am seeing is the record levels of participation and and certainly resumed levels of volume and open interest in our natural gas contract, as well as the European marker and TTF, uh, because more people recognize more risk and more volatility means a greater need for hedging instruments like futures and options on CME group exchanges. So I don't know if it'll spike again, but customers are increasing their positions and growth in our natural gas contract continues to grow. So that to me is a reflection of increased uncertainty uh, being mitigated uh, using our futures and options contracts. Uh-huh.
0: And I know we're running out of time, but I want to get to one last question before we do. Um with, with the sort of green transition, do you see any kind of new metals contracts or other sort of commodities that will be growing over the next couple
1: of years? Great question. Uh, Is These are all great questions and not not without uh, difficult answers. I think mean, here's yes. Uh, and when you think about what we do to develop new products and how we develop new product and innovate our way on behalf of our customers, we really make that customer-led. So it doesn't do the market much good if we on the exchange sit around and think about the next new thing And then develop it and try to explain to the market why they need it. All the successful product development that we've done, including the geo contract I just mentioned, the contract specification we built for cobalt and lithium, as examples, are all led by client demand and customer demand. What unmet need do they have in the market? What unhedgeable risk do they face? And how can we as an exchange build a product that helps them specifically address and mitigate that risk? So we're looking at a, a, a huge range of new potential products, but we spend a lot of time in that client validation process, talking to physical participants and commercial participants talking to the people that have the original risk talking to financial participants hedge funds and asset managers is this a market that would be useful to trade so it can build that healthy ecosystem that i mentioned before jeremy so um, great question there's nothing i can share with you today but i assure you that the track record of success of product developments and innovation that we've developed over the years uh, will continue to be the lifeblood and the DNA of this place. So as markets evolve and as needs change, we're walking right there, hand in hand with our customers, building new products to help this market continue to evolve no matter what risks we face going forward. <laughs> well,
0: thank you, Derek. I think uh, that's all the time we had today. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, Barron's live. will be back tomorrow uh, with investor business Daily's Alyssa Koram and, uh, David Saito Chung to discuss key lessons from IBD's founder, the late Bill O'Neill, And his biggest stock picking wins Uh, thank you again for listening and have a good rest of the day this episode is brought to you by charles schwab decisions made in washington can affect your portfolio every day but what policy changes should investors be watching washington wise is an original podcast for investors from charles schwab that unpacks the stories making news in washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio listen at schwab.com washington wise